Hi, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On BTS Podcast, I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do. That is what BTS stands for. This episode is part two of a series that I did with the co-founders of Central Labs and Kanapa. If you haven't listened to part one, please do that. It is with Ruben Torf. He is Molly's co-founder. Molly Conroy and I discuss her role as CEO and co-founder, her work in policy, and what consumers should be looking for on their CBD product labels. Ruben and I also talk about CBD product labels, so listen to both episodes for a fuller understanding. And as previously mentioned on the episode with Ruben, I also highly recommend listening to April Pride's podcast, How to Do the Pot. She digs into so much information for cannabis consumption and awareness and so many things. She has some terrific episodes to better understand how to use CBD. She shares a lot of information around women specifically and then has a really great episode on seniors using CBD and cannabis products. So please do give her podcast a listen, subscribe to it if you wanna learn more about her. interviewed on a previous podcast episode where we talk about her work in cannabis and how she has talked to her kids about working in cannabis. In this episode, I had a great time getting to know Molly and understanding her work. You'll hear some maybe, I don't know what the right word is, awkwardness, weirdness, whatever it is at the start. It's because I made a a big boo-boo. We had some Zoom troubles at first, so I paused the recording and then I forgot to resume the recording. So we'd had a really terrific conversation and talked for about 20 or 30 minutes before I realized, my God, this is not recording. And so we had to start over. So I'm sorry if it's a little bit stilted. That is 100% my fault. And then eventually we did fall into a, uh, a better cadence, but I'm really bummed because our initial conversation was terrific too. And I wish we could have just repeated it and then gone deeper. And I feel very bad for uh, sort of wasting some time with Molly's. Anyways, Canapa's products are great. Um, Central Labs, as you will hear, is a lab. Kanapa is their consumer product. And after we had this conversation, I bought some for myself and they are terrific. And they were kind enough to give listeners a promo code to save on their order. You can use BTS Podcast 25 at checkout at getkanapa.com and you will save 25% off your order. I bought several and a variety of products. I bought their salve, which was really lovely. I also got their what is it called? Let me look. Oh, I got their crema, which is a really delightful, thick and moisturizing lotion. It's kind of like a body butter and I love it. I am somebody who can be too physical and then wear myself out. And it's really helped with recovery and relaxation. I also got a couple of their tinctures and I'm a big fan. I got both the Spetro and Aqua and love them both. I have also sent some of these to podcast guests as a thank you and to friends and family just because I really, really love them and wanted to share, you know, sharing is caring. Anyhow, please do check out their products, give them a shot. You can find them on Instagram at getkanapa and their website is getkanapa.com. So dig in, order some stuff, treat yourself, treat your friends and family. I think we could all use a little extra kick in the relaxation department. If you haven't listened to episode one, please do. Huge shout out and thank you to Rebellious PR for introducing me to Molly and Ruben. These episodes would not have been possible without them. These were slated to come out on 420 and honestly, I just didn't have it in me. A lot of podcasters have powered through this year and this is one of many other projects I have. Um, I don't know, some listeners know me personally and follow me on Instagram and stuff. I'm in a band and I do freelance work in branding and marketing. I'm a photographer and then I also do acting and so In addition to all that, I have family obligations and I take those pretty seriously. I also take my health seriously and um, I take community involvement and activism really seriously. So this kind of gets put on the back burner 
when everything else is literally uh, falling apart. So anyhow, my apologies to ongoing listeners that I have not been as consistent as I would like to be. This episode was literally supposed to come out five months ago. So huge thank you to Molly and Ruben for their patience. I feel terrible that this did not come out in the 420 sort of like news cycle that I had intended. And I just, you know, I appreciate everyone's grace. So please do listen to the previous episode with Ruben. There's a bunch of really great links to different references that Molly makes during our conversation, including the Last Prisoner Project and the Bail Project. And then Molly shares some really great questions to ask when you are vetting CBD products. So give this podcast a listen to understand that better. You can also find me and the podcast on LinkedIn if you would like a bullet point listed sort of just questions to ask and things to look for, because I, for one, do not like scrolling through an hour long podcast to find about three minutes of information I'm looking for. So I wanna make it easier for everyone. I'm gonna try and make sort of like an animated graphic, not animated, but you know, some kind of graphic for the Instagram so that it's easy to reference, enjoy our conversation, buy some Kanapa products. Feel free to become a monthly contributor to this podcast. It would be wildly appreciated. Huge shout out to Camillo and Idris for their ongoing support. I really, really appreciate it. Other ways you can support this podcast that do not include you spending $5 every month include Staying at a hotel. The next time you stay at a hotel, book one with Hotel Tonight and use Cook 61 You can also get a massage and save on that. You can use Soothe, I'm a big fan. Massage therapists come to wherever you are. Right now, they are making sure that they all wear masks. Um, the last, ma I got one massage since the shutdown because I was in very extreme pain recently. And the massage therapist wore a mask, I wore a mask. Uh, she was very chill about me, like wiping down her table again, just with my own stuff to make sure it was completely clean. And we did it outside. So it felt safe. Hopefully it was safe. And if you're in desperate need of a massage, I personally feel like someone coming to my house feels a lot uh, safer than me going to a massage spot where people are in and out all the time. So use LZLRZ with your first Soothe Massage to save, and then I'll save on my next one. And uh, I love saving. Anyways, enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, find myself and the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, etc. And uh, thanks for the support. Hey, welcome to BCS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And I'm really excited to have on Molly Conroy today. She is the CEO and co-founder of both Kanapa and Central Labs. And I have done back-to-back -back episodes with her and her co-founder, Ruben Torp. So I'm really excited to share these in tandem. So she has a background in public affairs. And so I think it's really interesting both um, to have obviously another CEO and co-founder on, but then also somebody in the cannabis space who has a background in public affairs. I, hi, Molly. First of all, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. What we are uh, graciously leaving out is that Molly and I had already been talking for half an hour before I realized I had not started recording this Zoom call. So embarrassingly enough, we are restarting. And I really appreciate her patience with me. So we are, it is the start of April in 2020, which means that we're in the middle of COVID-19. So we're recording this via Zoom. So the audio quality may not be top notch, but I think we will all survive. And Molly, I would love to talk to you about your role as CEO and co-founder at Central Labs and then also Kanapa. Like what is what are sort of your like roles and responsibilities at the company? I'm sure you've interviewed startup co-founders before. Um, the role is 
whatever needs to get done. Um, you know, there was a point where Ruben and I, it was about a year ago, actually, almost exactly where we sat down and we put together a list of roles that we each were doing and tried to do what we called a final arbiter system, which we made up. That's not like a system that exists. So basically, we made a list of the things that we do. So everything from like marketing to content to packaging design to HR to bookkeeping to sales and advertising and strategy and data analytics and processing and like just everything that kind of our day-to-day -day is and divided it up. Um, and it was pretty simple to divide that up. We're both, I would say, very intimately involved in all aspects of the business, but we kind of what we called this final arbiter role was, okay, at the end of the day, we can have a discussion about what type of content to put out under Kanapa or what what type of tracking system to have for Sencha. But ultimately, I'm not going to jump in and say this engineering project should be done differently because I'm not an engineer. And Ruben's not going to jump in and say, I don't like this design on this packaging is to X, Y, and Z because Ruben doesn't know this packaging, like at the grocery store. We kind of, that's where this final arbiter role came in of who kind of has the final say at the end of the day. That sounds more bureaucratic than I think it actually is. In reality, very rarely does it get to a point where we're like, well, I'm the final arbiter on this. In fact, I don't think that's ever been said. But that framework, I think, kind of defined what we do. So long-winded, but what kind of falls into my wheelhouse is almost all of HR, although we do work together on that, but HR, bookkeeping, anything aesthetic-wise. So if there's anything content for websites or social media, anything with most, most things with press, advertising, marketing. But the main role I would say that I have, and, and I think the long-standing role that I that I play is really on a sales and partnership role. So most of all of 2018 and 2019, I was the only person doing sales. Now Ruben is working on that as well. But um, really working through partnerships with people, uh, we started out selling CBD extract, manufacturing and selling CBD extracts as ingredients. And that was a very transactional type of business um, where we weren't really forming these really deep relationships and partnerships we had um, and it was fine like we it was good but we just we felt like we weren't using our skill set to the most potential i guess and what we found was that we had been doing what's called toll processing for a farm here in oregon where we basically charge them a fee to process their hemp into different types of extracts and then we give that back to them and then they do they manufacture products with it or they sell it or et cetera, et cetera. And that was a really great relationship and a partnership. And we kind of looked at that and said, where are we, what are we doing right? And what, where are we kind of like stumbling along? And that's where we found that's what we were doing right is the relationships um, and communication and transparency uh, on our processes with our partners. And so we started looking for more of those types of partners. And that's where I would say the bulk of my time is spent is on either maintaining existing relationships, building out new partnerships. I don't really work with a lot of farms. Ruben handles that. I work more so with brands and buyers. So what that looks like is everything from either 
Some will call us and they'll say, I'm launching a lotion and I'm going to manufacture it myself, but I want a full spectrum product in it, full spectrum CBD in it. Well, that can mean, you know, a variety of, of parameters. And so it's kind of talking through what their goals are, what the effects are that they're looking for, and guiding them to the product that fits their goals best, not necessarily what they're saying up front, because a lot of customers don't necessarily know the nuances of the different types of extracts. And that's kind of on the, that still is a little bit more on the transactional side of things, but what we've really expanded into is more contract manufacturing and private labeling. And with that, it can be anywhere from you know, someone has an established brand and they want to launch a new product that their current manufacturer doesn't do, and we, you know, loop in our chemists and go through a product development lifecycle and recipe development. Or it could be someone it has never done a consumer package good before and they want to launch 10 products at once, which they're not actually going to do, but they like, think that they want to do that, so kind of guiding them through what that process is and hearing what their brand identity or guidelines are, and really what their ethos and I want to say morals are. And saying morals kind of deliberately here because there's a lot of, um, there's very unclear or non-existent regulation in the CBD space. And what that means is that brands and manufacturers and farms and consumers are kind of left to figure it out on their own until the FDA issues their rules. And because of that, there's also a lot of area for fraud and going to say manipulation of numbers, but, you know, I think we've, we've all heard about these reports of someone testing 50 products on the market and one in two products are more than 50% off on the potency. So, right. you know, consumers have a right to be distrustful on this when products are going to market that are not accurately represented. And so where we kind of come in on that is we're not just going to sell you a, a tincture to your brand. What we're going to do is we're going to connect you to the farm that the hemp was sourced from. We're going to show you the test result from that hemp, from that specific batch of hemp. We're going to show you the test result from the every step of the extraction process along the way. So if you're buying an isolate, which would be the most refined extract, uh, or it's just CBD, we're going to show you, you know, between one and four test results up until that actual potency test result prior to that actual final extract product, and then again on the consumer product. So you're really getting about five test, potency test results, which I think as a consumer, I would want, if I'm hearing all these people, all these companies saying, don't trust CBD products because they're not labeled correctly, I would want to see everything there is to see about it to make sure that what I'm buying is what I you know, what I'm paying for is what I'm actually getting because CBD products are expensive. They're, it's not like you're spending $10 on a month's supply or something. And if you are, definitely fake. Certainly a great way to tell is if you're if you're buying it really cheaply, it's probably not that good if, if yeah. useful at all. Like whatever you're experiencing is uh, almost certainly the, um, oh my goodness, my coffee must have worn off. I can't remember the word. What is the word for weight? Oh, the placebo effect. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I can't imagine starting a company and then having to do sales with those types of relationships where it's like people who are starting a company or starting a line. How did you early on, and even still, I guess, like how did you go about finding your first customers? I mean, and first customers, I guess I'm saying, I, I can assume a lot of those were relationship-based, but then what about people that were sort of like, not cold calling, but whatever the sort of equivalent of that is? So 
and this might come off really cocky, but the reality, we didn't really look for customers at first. So when we started out, when Ruben and I moved out to Oregon four years ago, we both got involved in the cannabis industry. And I am an extrovert and spend a lot of time talking to people in general and really started getting, I knew no one when I moved to Oregon. I mean, I knew like two people, maybe. I can't even think of who two people are, but I really didn't know anyone when I moved here. And so I started going to industry events. And even though I've been a cannabis consumer for a long time, I really didn't know that much about cannabis either. Uh, in hindsight, I, I thought I did, but I didn't. And so I started going to a ton of networking events. And that range, really the, the initial goal was I wanted to get involved in, in public policy here surrounding cannabis. And I didn't know how to do that because I was interviewing at public affairs firms and, you know, how you're useful in that is really who you know. And when you move to a new state and you don't know anyone, you're not very useful to a company. And it, the interview ends pretty quickly when they realize you don't have any contact. And so I started going to these really, I would say, political networking events. So it was things like small fundraisers for Governor Brown or data nights, like the, the Oregon Cannabis Association was putting on data analytics nights and things like that and kind of industry trends. And I just started going to them and meeting people. And it was not to get sales because we didn't have anything or even really a concept at that point to sell, but it was more so to make friends and get involved. And so when we started Sencha, we were really, really fortunate that our, I think our, our second or third batch of hemp was a toll processing contract with a farm. They're a really great farm. They have great just kind of ethics and morals and they're incredibly transparent. And we just started working with them and they, they trusted us because they had known us for a couple of years um, and kind of took a chance on us. And that's how we got really our first, I would say through our first six months is just from pre-existing relationships. And what ended up happening from that is we still didn't really do any outreach. Um, and in fact, I think once, even once we did start doing like quote unquote cold calling or outreach, it really didn't result in anything like very poor response rate could have been our emails. Uh, but no, that's a really hard, like impossible thing to do. Like I have zero faith in cold calling for the most part. The only time I've ever seen it work, I guess it's not even cold calling. I'm, I like helped start a, photo booth company years and years ago and we do installs at like bars and clubs and I would say that you can get once you kind of get your spiel together and you figure out the right times and like the right kind of like confidence to go in with you can there's a pretty high success rate at getting a photo booth installed at a bar if you just go in and talk to the owner and explain like the revenue and stuff like that that can come from it but that is the only area of life that I've ever seen like sort of just cold lead sales workout like that is a really hard thing to do so yeah that that makes a lot of sense that you facilitated that and i i had never thought through the fact that if you work in public affairs that moving must be a really tough thing to do when you're moving somewhere that you don't know people i guess i'd never i kind of just based on what a relationship relationship based industry that is um or i guess like line of work it's not really an industry but that's like fascinating really helped us with sales is we started getting referrals. So the companies that we were working with, you know, Oregon's not very big and it's a pretty tight knit group of people in the industry, I would say. And so 
Eastwork started referring us to people for contract manufacturing, and we started getting um, inbounds, which was great. And that's kind of how we've sustained ourselves to this point. Now, we are now at the point, I think, where we need to start doing outreach to brands and stores to kind of got, help them start a brand or launch a brand. Um, we're actually about to start a campaign on that this end of this week or early next week. Um, and, and where that's coming from, is, it, I guess it is a version of cold calling, but we work with a farm that also has a retail store and they do great volume um, because they, they know about the product. They're growing it and then we're manufacturing it for them and selling, you know, and then sending it to them. And so we kind of took that, what I'm going to call a case study and thought, okay, there's got to be other CBD stores who want their own brand um, as opposed to carrying, you know, it's, I think it's really good to have variety and carry a lot of different brands, but um, to kind of have a couple products that are your flagship brand branded products with maybe low or higher margins with a lower cost associated with them. Um, and so we're starting to do outreach in that regard, but we really, um, really are very relationship based. One thing that we talked about earlier, so I we like briefly touched on uh, public affairs just in sort of in passing. But I loved a metaphor that you brought up earlier during my recording snafu, where uh, I talked about, I was asking you about um, how much of your job is also dealing with legislation and stuff like that. And you were talking about how much you enjoyed it. And I would love for you, if you can, to like make the metaphor that you did with um, the work around legislation and crossword puzzles, because I thought that was like a really good point and a really good yeah. framework for people to better understand who either are like interested in that or having a hard time doing it and like maybe wrap their head around it in a, a little bit of a different way. Yeah, so I think one thing is I hardly ever include when someone asks kind of like what my role is or what what I do, I hardly ever include that in it because at least it just doesn't come to mind because in my mind it's like when I get to do that, it's almost like my fun time or my like break time. Um, yeah. I really love I really love doing it. Um, but I think that the analogy I was saying, so you would ask if we if we use a lawyer to kind of work on legislation with and dissect legislation. And the answer is no. And um, you know, a big reason for that is that there's kind of tricks to reading legislation. And I was using the analogy of a crossword puzzle because if you do crossword puzzles, you know that like, depending on the author, depending on the publication, which I guess is really the, depending on the author, there's kind of these little like habits that the author of crossword puzzles pick up. So um, I don't even have a good example, but if you do crossword puzzles, you know what I'm talking about, that there's these like yeah. tricks kind of, a, and actually uh, Ruben doesn't do crossword puzzles, and it's very interesting to do them with him because he will see a clue and he gets like a very literal answer, which you kind of have to get in that, right? You have to get in this like mindset of a crossword puzzle. It is a muscle. It is definitely a muscle because yeah. when I have not done crossword puzzles for a little bit, um, I've like lost it. And so I'll have to start off with Sunday and sort of like go, you know, to Saturday because for, for listeners who don't know, uh, the Sunday one is the easiest one. And then... Monday is really hard, and then it sort of, and I could be wrong, maybe that's just the New York Times, but if I remember correctly, Sunday was the easiest, and then it gets, like, harder and then easier throughout the week, or maybe it's 
Is that wrong or is it the opposite? I think they usually go like Sunday, um, they, they get, they start easiest and they get harder throughout the week. So like Friday. Saturday, right. So Saturday is the hardest one. That's what it is. Saturday is the hardest one and like, because the week technically starts on Sunday. I, I like got my week. I think so. Like maybe Monday is easiest. I actually don't remember right now. No, I think it is Saturday is the hardest one. Because I used to yeah. be a barista, and that's what I did during my breaks, was that I would go to the New York Times crossword puzzle. And my grandpa and I would do the crossword puzzles when I was growing up. And so, like, I've been doing Will Short's crossword puzzles for forever. And um, you've reminded me how much I miss it, actually. And it is, it yeah. is something that when you know an editor that you're like, oh, even, like, the title of the crossword puzzle, if, like, the title of the crossword puzzle is something, like, unfinished or, like, the, or something with, uh, sports related puns throughout the crossword puzzle and like yeah. there's just different little clues like that that then once you start mm -hmm. getting into it that you're like oh I recognize this person's pattern it's almost like prose like poetry where you're like oh now I know exactly. the cadence and like what I'm supposed to expect and like even if I don't know the answer I'll be able to guess around like what it might be or what it might imply or where to look and it it makes it really really fun and I have many, many times burst into laughter, like a hidden joke in a crossword puzzle. It's like a very... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people, like, those are stuck in the legislation too sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like that, like reading legislation, once you kind of get it, it, it's con it can be consistent. And um, so I think it's easier to do, if you've never done a crossword puzzle, even if you're the smartest person in the world, it can be really difficult to do a crossword puzzle. And I think it's very similar to legislation. Like unless you're in that kind of mindset and know how to read it, it can be daunting um, and, and just kind of hard to comprehend. Um, but the other side of this is like, there isn't that much legislation about CBD and hemp. You know, right. we're waiting for it uh, from the FDA. And what I think a lot of people don't understand about legislation is when a bill is passed, that's great. That's, you know, that legal, when the farm, the 2018 farm bill passed that legalized hemp and its derivatives, but kind of, but then it goes to administrative rulemaking. And that's where really like the guts of um, how a program will work or what the, what actually the rules are. Because saying something's legal doesn't set up a program for it. It's set up like, well, what are the testing limits and what are, you know, we saw this in cannabis, like, you can't just say cannabis is legal and not have rules around it. Like, who can start a dispensary? Can anyone sell cannabis now out of their window? Like, no, of course not. Well, at least not in the regulated framework. And, and so now we're waiting on this rulemaking to occur on the hemp level and on the federal level on hemp. And once that happens, I think it'll be a lot more, a lot more fun to be going through this stuff. I think, one of my favorite things at my previous job that I did, I was the program director at the Oregon Cannabis Association, and I sat on a lot of um, what are called rules advisory committees, and you basically are meeting with a governing body, an administrative rulemaking body, so the OLC, the Liquor Control Commission, or the Department of Agriculture, or the Department of Health, and you're working through and giving input on potential rules changes and what to change, what not to change, the actual effects. Because you have to realize like the people who are making these rules are not the people growing the hemp or manufacturing it, or at least they're not the ones drafting the legislation usually. And so they need industry people in there to be kind of commenting, okay, well, 
what are the actual effects of this proposed rule? It's not just, you know, I think safety, like public safety is a really good example of you have to have, let's say, you know, you can't, you have to have security, right? Uh, at, a, right. at a cannabis dispensary. But how long do those have to be backed up? Like how do you have to store that, those recordings, like all that kind of stuff? And then what is the implication on the business? What is the financial implication? Like, do you have to hire, is it, do you have to hire someone to manage that process? Like there's, there's all these implications for each rule. And I have really liked being able to be part of that process, kind of debate whether the merits outweigh the negative consequences. So I hope to be able to do that more on the hemp side as more regulations come out. And so as you're doing that, and Ruben mentioned this and it's not something I'd thought about, but there's, that is also very relationship-based because it's not like it's posted publicly somewhere like, hey, we're going to be having a discussion today about the implications. How do you find other people in cannabis to kind of like bring in a more um, like, like just more diversity because there is a lot of concern about racial equity in cannabis. And so um, how much do people, especially because uh, Portland is very white, like I imagine that is also something that's really important is to bring in other um, people in the cannabis industry that are people of color for their input. Because also if you're at a dispensary, your experience is going to be very different than like your concerns as a lab. Like what are ways that people are bringing more sort of like diversity and equity into the room? So one clarification real quick, anything with, a, with like a debate on rulemaking actually is required to be public. Um, oh, okay. To be public. It's just, I think most people don't know about it or don't want to listen to, you know, 10 people debate a very, a rule that may have very little implication for people outside the industry. Um, Fair. So yeah. Just as, not, I'm not trying to be rude and call you out. Just that um, it, it is, they're not private uh, for the most part and are, are required to notify the public um, of those rulemaking committees. But well, equity, I guess as the rules um, are being, as the rules are being uh, written, right? Because you you have to notify the public when it then is like up for discussion. But there's so many conversations that happen before that that lead yeah. to that um, discussion, which is usually presented in the way of a dichotomy. Like once once a bunch of decisions have been made, it's like, oh, are we going to do this or not? Versus like, hey, let's reshape the way this is done. So I guess in more of those like formative conversations. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, so when it comes to equity, it's a really bad situation, I would say, in cannabis. The reality is you have a lot of people still in prison in states that have legalized cannabis. So it's not just, you know, in a state like in the South that hasn't legalized cannabis and that might be more punitive or aggressive on prosecuting cannabis-related offenses. It's in states like Oregon and New York and California where there is legalized cannabis and there's still people in jail for doing what we're now doing legally. Right. Um, and, and that's just the reality of it right now. And so I think if one, one thing is the states need to do a better job of setting up the programs right from the start. I think we're seeing that in Illinois um, in a really good way. So Illinois um, just went on January 1st, 2020, and they set up their program to um, I don't know the minutia on it or the, the kind of specific details, but they set it up to be very equitable from a 
gender and race perspective, but especially race. So there's a lot of taxes going to communities that have been most impacted by the war on drugs. And those are traditionally communities of color. And so I think that that is, it's really hard to change it after the fact. It's much harder yeah. than setting up a program right from the start. And so I think it's, it's really interesting to see now. I, I think there's a lot of people who also are complaining about how high the taxes on cannabis are in Definitely. Illinois. I think some receipts, but if you don't know what they're going for, like it, it is crazy. You're basically paying double. But those taxes are going to say, or allegedly are supposed to be going to really good programs. And I think that's really necessary. But I also think that there's two things that I think brands can do and companies can do. One is hiring, like hire a diverse workforce. And I think that's, that can be hard in places like work, but it's really necessary. And I don't know how, I, I view it even from a selfish perspective as a business owner, like how can you, how can you, like if you only have one point of view and come from one background, whether that's socioeconomic or race or gender or um, sexuality or religion or whatever, I don't know how you can accurately or adequately service your customers yeah, because you're, totally. you don't know what their needs are. And so I think you have to make an effort to hire a diverse workforce. We are about 50% female, which is, which is good, but I think we have a long way to go still on creating a more diverse team. It's hard, but everyone needs to make the effort and, and do it. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot of brands doing, which we're also doing, is financially giving back. It's really important to work on legislation and really important to work on hiring practices, And but it's also um, people need money, and there are a lot of really great organizations and nonprofits that are working on this, so things like the Last Prisoner Project and the Bail Project, and the, you know these are organizations that are working on expungements for nonviolent-related cannabis convictions, and donating a percentage of, you know, profit or sales to organizations like that, I think is, it's a good step. I don't think it solves a lot, but I think brands that aren't doing that in the future are going to be left behind because it is a topic that people are talking about, and I think it's a really important one. Yeah, and I mean, and so many studies have shown time and time again that consumers are caring now more than ever about brands' ethics and morals and, like, where they stand with social responsibility and their sourcing and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's becoming increasingly important. And hopefully the legislation that Illinois passed also just lights a fire under the behinds of other states to go, like, hey, they're making this work. I think that it's really important that I'm constantly challenging companies that I work with to sort of like raise the bar proactively versus like reactively or in tandem with mm-hmm. other brands because then you really do force the customers of your of your competition to go oh like they're able to do that as like a smaller medium sized business and like Illinois is able to do that as a state that hasn't necessarily been known um for cannabis legalization like being on board with that early on so I think that it's really important when people do, and like obviously lots of people are involved in, in that, making that happen, but it's also just important for companies to and states and all of us to learn from each other. Like I'm constantly shocked when there's uh, so many case studies and like things that we have access to that people put themselves in the position to reinvent the wheel where you're like, you could just have seen that that did not work well elsewhere. Like we did not need to do the same thing just because it's already been done. Um, 
One yeah, thing that Ruben and I did touch on with like creative problem solving and how important it is. And I think that that must be super fun with what you, like your background is in public affairs and um, being able to, once you've figured out sort of uh, the way that it, something has been constructed to be able to go like, okay, well, what if we looked at it this way? Or what if we rewrote this and like didn't present it um, in such a, because I think we all have a tendency to, uh, especially with laws for things to become like a very clear dichotomy of like, oh, either we're doing this or we're not. And um, being able to approach problems with like a layer of complexity must be like really fun for you. Yeah, I think it's really necessary. Like there's very rarely a problem that has a very clear solution, at least in what we do. Um, there's usually multiple solutions or, I mean, there's always a solution, I was gonna say, or no solution, but um, there's, there's usually multiple solutions, and we often kind of we try not to um, we try not to have too much like groupthink. But what, what Ruben and I will often do is kind of try to come up with a solution on our on our own, and then come together and discuss those potential solutions. And I would say half the time we're like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. I didn't think about it that way. And then we're we we don't make a decision on which the, which is the right solution because then we start thinking about all the other solutions that are there and then we'll call our business partner who's also my brother um, and get his opinion and he presents three new solutions and you know they they're all they're, none of them are clearly wrong and none of them are clearly right a little bit from each solution and and applying it which I think is really important to get creative problem solving I think it's also you know startups generally are not flush with cash. And so right. that's another component that comes in is something breaks or something goes wrong. There is one easy solution. It's putting money at it. But usually with startups, and I, I think this is especially true in manufacturing, like it's very hard to just say, okay, well, we'll spend $250,000 or a million dollars to fix that machine or to, you know, launch a new product or something like that. And so it's getting creative on what to do within a budget. Too. Yeah, absolutely. It does add a fun uh, layer of complexity. And I think manufacturing is so interesting to me. Like anytime I can go on a tour of a factory is like the most fun thing in the world to me because I think it's so fun. Um, I, I got to go on a tour of a pinball factory, like I think in November of last cool. year. And it was super, super fun. And then I used to work with a tortilla chip company and um, seeing how like tortilla chips are made and then how they're bagged through like a bagging machine and stuff, which is so, it's still, I'm sure, so simple in terms of like the things that machines can do. But I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Like this is where chips come from. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually really interesting that you say it like that because I feel like that's also just what it's like to date an engineer. Um, oh yeah, totally. And like, you know, I'll say something like, oh, I can't believe, like, I love this packaging or I love the way this is, like, done or something. And, and Ruben will go into it and be like, oh, well, it was done like this. Or I'll say, like, I can't, I can't imagine how they put this together. And Ruben will be mm -hmm. like, oh, it's simple, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, it, it's interesting. I agree. It's really interesting. And it's not, manufacturing is not something that I did prior to the canvas industry. Um, and it's its own set of fun problem solving. Yeah, and even more regulations, I'm sure, because there's like, you know, especially with like whatever space you guys have and stuff like that, it, that must be really, really interesting. I would, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit. I would love to talk about 
um, the sort of like genesis of Kanapa because you started Central Labs and then decided to also sort of become your own customer and do a private label yourself. What sort of sparked that? And then we can get into like what that was like starting that company for you. Yeah, Kanapa is an interesting story. So when we launched Sensha, we were not planning on doing consumer products. We weren't planning on doing our own brand and we weren't planning on doing manufacturing of consumer products. And it just wasn't, just wasn't in our business plan. So there's two reasons why we started Kanapa. One is, turns out when you start a business, your stress levels increase. Well, at least my Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know anyone who would like say differently. Um, It is the level of stress or type of stress, I guess, that um, I've certainly never experienced before. Um, And I've always gotten migraines since I was a kid. And I pretty much right when we started Sencha, I just started getting daily migraines. And to the point where I was a very, I wasn't being very effective um, because I was in a room with, you know, an eye mask on to stay away from light. And it was just, it was really bad. And Robin kept trying to get me to take CBD to help my migraines. And I was very pro-CBD, have been, but for whatever reason, was just completely refusing to try it for migraines. And I think it's just because if you've had a migraine, like the pain is so bad and the effects are so bad that you don't think that something natural, or I didn't think something natural could help. And Ruben is definitely the wellness person in this far more than me. You know, Ruben gets up and stretches and meditates every morning and I don't. I get on my phone right when I wake up. Um, <laughs> well, and also and, I think when you have migraines or any sort of like physical ailment, it is very annoying because I have really bad TMJ and I didn't really, I just sort of like suffered through it and didn't really say anything. But then the moment I opened my mouth about it, you get so many like unwanted opinions from people of just yeah. the things that you should be doing that. And I imagine um, because you're, we both clearly are like curious people and then also uh, probably are like a fair amount of like stubborn and independent. And then when you are all of those things, but also a woman, you're used to like just a lot of people telling you what to do. And it gets, it makes you like more resistant to anyone giving you a recommendation. Cause you're like, no, I know myself. I know what I want. And it is yeah. not CBD. Like leave me alone. So no, I, yeah. I would totally understand the resistance. It's like more of a stubborn thing than it is the actual the actual thing. Like if you removed like your brain and ego and like whatever else goes into it from that, you probably would be open to it. Or if you'd found it on your own, you'd probably be open to it. But the idea of someone else telling you what to do is like, no, don't like, don't you think I've thought this through? I mean, even, yeah, that that goes to sleep too, because Ruben has a very regimented sleep routine and um, like, two hours before you go to sleep, he puts on his blue light glasses and takes melatonin and magnesium and a sleep tincture and CBD and like all of these things. And, you know, if we're working in different rooms, he'll come in and be like, I have your, I have your blue light glasses for you. And I'll feel like, get out of here. Like, but in reality, I should be wearing them. Like it's, it's totally, it's, it's the resistance of someone telling you what to do. I think for me, 
the other thing with with migraine specifically is I had been on a medication since I was a kid that I always considered like a miracle drug. It just worked really well, got rid of migraines very quickly for me, and I never really had bad side effects from it. And I don't know why, but it just stopped working um, in late 2018, early 2019. And it was just, yeah, it was really bad. Um, and I eventually got a migraine where I usually lose eyesight a little bit, but I lost hearing, which had never happened before. And oh, it's like yeah, that's sufficiently awful. freaked. Yeah, and it, it kind of like freaked me out at a different level than I had been. And I was pretty much incapacitated and Ruben started giving me the tincture, um, which was a full spectrum CBD tincture, but it was made with um, what's called RSO, Rick Simpson oil. And what that means is it still has a lot of, it's a very low, low energy, low heat, low pressure extraction method. And a lot of everything in the plant is really still left in the extract, whereas most types of extracts, you're removing a lot from the plant. Um, and so it's not just that it's full spectrum in terms of cannabinoids, but it also has chlorophyll and plant fats and terpenes and everything that's in the plant. I think the analogy that I hear a lot, which is, I think is pretty accurate, is it's like drinking a glass of orange juice. You're not really removing anything from the orange. You're just juicing it. Oh, um, interesting. Versus taking like a vitamin tablet. Um, and for whatever reason, it helped. And it got, I was taking, I took a lot. Like, I mean, I took half a bottle, but it got me to a point where I could work, which is not something that I'm normally able to do with migraine. And I didn't have what Ruben calls my, um, Maxol hangovers, which was the drug that I used to be that I used to be on that worked really well. Um, I wasn't getting those like next day grogginess that I had with the medicine, um, and so I started taking it. It probably took nine or ten migraines to actually convince myself that it was working and it wasn't just a coincidence. Um, right at that point, at that point, I we started thinking like we should sell this if. Because I tried, I had tried other CBD products that were on the market that were full spectrum, and I think I honestly attributed as much to the chlorophyll as to the actual CBD, because most of the products on the market don't have that, don't leave that chlorophyll in, and it tastes really strong. Like it tastes like you're eating cannabis or yeah. Um And I think for a lot of people, they don't want that taste. So for a brand, it, it's a lot more palatable to remove it. Um, but we just start thinking, like, if this is helping me, it's... I'm sure it helps other people. It will help other people, and so we should launch this brand, or we should start selling it. Um, and I've never created a brand before, so that was an interesting process. But that was the impetus to do it. And then we also had started. We had been having some conversations about starting to get into private labeling and contract manufacturing, and we kind of started viewing what was evolving as Kanapa as our test case for doing private labeling and contract manufacturing. Um, I have pretty high standards, I would say, on what I will put out under Kanaba. Um, I did when we launched a brand and I do now. And so our, our thought process was, well, if, if I would put it out under my own brand, then I would feel comfortable doing it for someone else's brand. Um, right. And so we kind of used 
come out as the test case for can we do private labeling? Can we do contract manufacturing? Can we do custom formulations for people? Um, like, can we make products good enough that we ourselves would put out under our own brand? And the, the answer was yes. So um, it was kind of dual purpose in its formation, but it wouldn't have happened, I would say, without those pesky migraines. It also probably helped um, show you what your own sort of customer experience would be like. So that way you knew what it was like on the customer end, like what kind of questions people have. Because I think it's really hard when you have a B2B company, but you've never been the other B. <laughs> like you've never been that on the receiving oh. end of that service or product or whatever it may be to anticipate the frustrations and know what people mean. I mean, there's so many even just online services that I've used that haven't been user friendly. And they're like, and so when I've asked them questions like, hey, this isn't working or whatever, they're like, well, you just do this. And I'm like, yeah, but if it was designed well, I wouldn't need to ask you. Like if it was user friendly, yeah. I wouldn't have to reach out and ask you like, why don't I know if this thing I uploaded went through and like, why is it that it looks like I can upload multiple assets, but it only lets me insert, you know, and like leverage one at yeah. a time and just things like that. And so it is really easy to be in an echo chamber because we would all like to think that our customers would operate however we think they should. But like the, the whole idea of good design and I think customer experience is truly like, you have to be a good designer to make a good customer experience is like making that whole experience as like seamless as possible where there shouldn't be questions and there shouldn't be a moment where there's like a frustration in terms of like services offered and the services expected in terms, especially when it comes to something like that. And then it's also like, what kind of questions can we anticipate? And you really put yourself in the situation to really understand what people will need, like what the, what the um, sort of parameters are when you're launching your own private label. That's really awesome. Yeah, I think also, like, yeah, it, you're spot on. I mean, it was really good for us to see the other side of things, um, or and is really good. There's, when we launched Kanafa, I put together this FAQ that I was going to put on the website, and I sent it to a couple people to review it, and they were like, yeah, it's a lot of information in here. And I just hadn't, it just wasn't quite ready to, to be put on the website. And I started doing um, markets, like in-person events, and seeing what questions people were actually asking. Oh, None smart. of my FAQ, no one wanted to know what was on my FAQ. Like, no one cared what the extraction <laughs> process was. No one cared, like, what solvents are used or whatever. And so it was really helpful to also hear what customers are asking. Um, because now I think we're in a much better position to actually help brands proactively put things together. So even since we launched Kanapa, we've always put QR codes on the bottom of the boxes that show batch-specific lab results. And, you know, when we started, we were just doing it for the product. Now we've kind of taken it a couple steps further, and we're including the test result for the product, the extract, the hemp, and the pre-harvest report. And even just being able to guide customers on how to create QR codes or like things to look for in a brand that I, I didn't know how to do when we launched the brand. Like I was just Googling things and reading blogs on how to launch a brand. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. So, like, 
it's great to be able also, though, to like help other companies answer those questions or, or kind of get ahead of those things before someone asks, a customer asks, before one of their customers asks that question. What kind of questions do you think customers should be asking that they're not asking? I think that they should be asking where the hemp was grown. I think that that's really important. Hemp is a bioaccumulator, so it sucks up uh, whatever's in the soil. It's really good for soil remediation because it sucks up like heavy metals and anything that's bad in the soil. But what that means is it's in the plant. And so then when you concentrate the plant, you're also getting all of those heavy metals. So we test all of the hemp that comes in our lab for heavy metals prior to processing it. Um, and I think it's heavily dependent on where it's grown, what we see. Uh, so I think consumers should be asking that. I think they should be asking who made But what that. are, sorry, wait, one more question about that, about that answer. What are, yeah. because when people are asking where it's grown, what are good places, like what are good answers and what are bad answers? I would say that Oregon hemp is the best hemp, but I'm partial because we're here. Um, we don't really bring in hemp from anywhere else because there's enough of it here that we don't need to. Uh, and we, we just don't see the issues that we see in other states. Um, I would say the biggest red flag is if it's coming from um, like overseas, there's just different farming practices and this, it's dependent on what the soil is like. So if the soil is rich in metals, that's not gonna be, a, that's not gonna be good for a CBD product. Um, so, you know, I, I think in general, hemp, hemp people should be making sure it's grown in the U.S. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I just wasn't sure I, because I don't know, like I wouldn't know if a place was rich in metals or not. Like that's not information yeah. I would know off the top of my head. Yeah, and I think also that's my response right now. I think as more regulations come in on testing, you'll be able to get good hemp from places outside the U.S. Like I think there's a lot of good hemp being grown in Europe, I'm sure in a lot of other places, but when they don't have the heavy metal testing requirements, it's really hard to ensure the quality. But I think also looking for test results on the product. So if a test result is, you know, more than a year old, like ask, ask for a more recent one. I think oh, interesting. CBD doesn't really go bad very quickly, but it, the cannabinoids can change. Um, and so making sure that you're, you have an up-to-date COA is good. COA is the test result. So if it's a water-soluble product, I would look for microbial testing. Water-soluble products are really prone to microbials growing. And so looking for that, I think- And when people are looking at that though, like what should they be looking out for, right? Because if I look up that information, is it like clear about what those results mean? Like how do you find out more about that? Because it's, it's kind of like nutrition yeah. facts. Like it's fine that I can see how much sodium or sugar or something, but if I don't understand that sugar is bad for me, then yeah. uh, it doesn't really matter that I know that there's 16 grams. Yeah, it's really hard to read a test result too, if you're not familiar with them. So I think, you know, with something like microbials, it should be, there shouldn't, it shouldn't list them. Like it'll list the microbial names, it'll say, you know, E. coli, and then there just shouldn't be a number there. If there's a number there, it means it's <laughs> That's fair. But I think the other, the hard thing is the Oregon cannabis testing requirements are stricter than for organic food. And so what might flag something on a cannabinoid test result for like a pesticide is also something that you're eating on a regular basis from the grocery store, even if you're buying organic. So I think you have to take them, I mean, maybe not with a grain of salt, but I think, you know, 
we've done a lot of research on like what is the normal lead level in drinking water? Is it mm -hmm. different when it's distilled? Is it different if it's, I don't know, spring water versus something else? And so we've actually done test results on heavy metals at cannabis testing labs, but just on water. And the water from the tap will show lead and arsenic in it. We haven't done anything to it. We haven't put any CBD in it. That's just what's in the drinking water here. Um, where it, so then you need to get distilled water. But like, my point is just that sometimes if a test result ha shows something, it might not be because of the CBD, it might be because of another ingredient in it, um, which is why we always have extract prior to making the final product as well. Oh, interesting. That's really fascinating. Um, that's awesome. Are there any other things that you think people should look out for? Because I feel like I cut you off for at least one. No, I think, I think some people want to know where their product's manufactured and who made it. I think it's something I now look for, but I also think that some brands don't want to, don't want to disclose that information because it, it's just a little, maybe it's too much into their company, like too, too much information that they don't want to share about where everything's coming from and who's making what component of it, right? Like you don't know, you know, a, a computer charger that says it's Apple might be from many by a different company or something like that's maybe right. a bad example, but. You know, no, like, no, no, it's a good like example because a lot thing. of, um, la like, a lot of the consumer, like, uh, lower-end laptops are actually all just made at the same factory um, yeah. overseas, yeah. and then they just get labeled with, I'm not going to call it any names, but for sure there's a lot of laptops out there that are right. the exact same laptop just with a different logo slapped on them, and, like, maybe one has an Intel chip and the other one has NVIDIA or something. Like, it could just right. be as simple as that. Exactly. So I think that's really interesting to me now um, is I'm much more interested in who actually is making the product, not just who's branding the product. Um, but I don't know that that's always information you can find. And if a brand doesn't tell you, it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Right. Yeah. It also, I mean, I've worked with a lot of small companies and I've started small companies and sometimes that information is withheld, not because anything bad is happening, but because you're like, oh, this is embarrassing. There's just three of us. We don't want them to know because also where it's made is like our garage. And yeah, it doesn't like, <laughs> it feels like yeah, you totally. feel, I mean, even for this podcast in my like sponsorship deck for like potential sponsors, I put it together and then I tweet it out because I have like a lot of the people that follow me on Twitter um, work in marketing or advertising. And so they're used to seeing this kind of stuff. And I was like, hey, let me know what criticisms you have. And like, as someone who works with companies who look to sponsor podcasts, like what kind of information would you want and expect from me? And I'd really just put sort of like listener demographics and numbers so that people knew where people were at. Right. Because if you're, if your demographic is like largely, I want to say like in Florida and Texas, this is not the podcast for you. Like I have West coast, New York, and then like, you know, Australia and like some of Europe, but like, Certainly not, like, I don't have that many listeners in Texas or Florida. It never even occurred to me. It also, it, like, feels somewhat embarrassing because I know a lot of, not embarrassing, but it feels like, ooh, well, sponsors care that I don't have, like, a producer and that I do it myself and that, like, I'm doing all of it myself um, because my previous podcast, I was the producer and then uh, my co-creator was the host. So we looked a little bit more official that there was, like, two of us. 
And it never even occurred to me. People were like, well, they want to know more about you. Like, talk about who you are as the host and your background and, like, maybe what inspired the podcast. And that sort of, like, soft information just felt, like, I felt so exposed. But I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. But then cat's out of the bag. It really is just me. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's definitely a component. I also think some brands also don't want to share that they don't make the product. Right? Right. Totally. What I have found, though, is when I've done in-person events with Kanaba, when I can speak to the fact that we are making everything from start to finish, um, including doing the extraction on almost all of the other non-hemp herbs, it resonates with people. And I'm not sure if it's just because it's a differentiator, because most brands aren't doing their own manufacturing, but it definitely resonates. So I think I think people want to know, but I I also don't think you need to say it's made by this huge lab or whatever. It's just, yep, we work with a partner lab in Oregon or we work with whoever. Like, I think it's, I think it's important to highlight those things. And maybe it's selfish and it's just because I want to be highlighted. I, that could be like the subconscious reality. It's not, now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe that's it. But, um, yeah. Well, I don't think it, no, I don't think it's uh, a selfish thing. I think it's, I think it's also just the reality as we head into a landscape where people are starting to realize more and more how much, especially really large companies have been deceitful with their business practices and their supply chain, that people do want to know these things. And when you're trying to attract a certain type of customer, like when you're, and you're a certain type of product where um, you have a very different customer for like a broom. Like, I, ne- I don't really care where my broom is made, right? Like, right. But then, something that you're taking, that you're putting in your yeah, body. exactly. And, and also where there's a lot of options because, like, with brooms and mm-hmm. toilet papers, toilet paper, like, I know I'm not going to be able to find, like, a super high quality, like, because if it were up to me, sure, I would love to find, like, uh, toilet paper that's made out of recycled materials and made in the U.S. and that isn't, like, rolled in a bunch of plastic. That'd be awesome. I have no idea where to find that. Similarly, yeah. <laughs> it was a very long time before because most of my clothes, I I basically sans shoes and socks. I mostly buy clothes that are all like made in the U.S. or I buy them used. But it becomes really difficult up until the last couple of years to like, and even now to find underwear that's like made in the U.S. that I also like yeah. and want to wear. Like that's really hard. So no, I think it's I think it is uh, something that people were moving more and to- more and more toward a direction. I think, especially in the states that marijuana is legalized in, and how much people are realizing through vaping and like all kinds of other things that like not all cannabis products are created equal, let alone CBD. Um, yeah. So yeah, it does become really interesting. People, we are going to. Think- oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that there's also a pretty big movement of just knowing where things are coming from. Like, even things like nail polish. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who was like, yeah, now I buy all my nail polish from this small business that I want to support. And I know I do that with with earrings and, like, jewelry. And so I think highlighting makers is uh, becoming more important for brands. Yeah, The pieces behind the product. Yeah, I love that Vital Farms. I don't know if you've ever bought their eggs, but like Vital Farms is a little card that like is like get to know your farmer and it has whatever sort of farm that's I think their limit is like within 100 miles or whatever it is. But I know that when I'm in Washington, it's like a Washington farmer. And when I'm in California, it's a California farmer. Um, And that does feel good. Yeah, like, oh, cool. I'm glad to know that it is important to me because I don't. um, Otherwise, a lot of those labels 
mean nothing. Like one of the things that I started this podcast for was I went to go buy a washcloth and it was like made with all natural materials. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, it what are the materials? <laughs> right, exactly. I'm like, what are the other materials? Yeah. And like, what's the qualifier for all natural? Because I see it on candy that it's like made with all natural ingredients. And I'm like, yeah, I guess any kind of crappy chocolate counts as all natural because eventually somewhere down the line, there's an ingredient in there that came from a cacao plant. But like, yeah, and I suppose sugar, like anything can be all like a laptop is made from natural ingredients. If you consider the fact that like somewhere down the line, it came from a natural source, but that doesn't make it an all natural laptop. You'd be shocked at how little oversight there is on uh, packaging and labeling too. In general, Ugh. like web, like web for cosmetics, for anything is people say a lot that yeah. isn't false, but also isn't really much. Like, yeah, it is, it's like horrifying to me. And it, it really makes me, it makes any um, purchase that I make very frustrating because I'm always like, well, let's get to the bottom of this first because I, and now, now you've really got me going because I had not thought about <laughs> nail polish. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I hadn't either. It, but it's stuff like that where now I'm noticing myself like really looking into sourcing and all this stuff. And, you know, I think there's also, I don't know, I, I think people like knowing who's behind products too. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it does help a lot. It, um, it definitely, there is the whole thing about humanizing a brand, but it is, you want to feel like your money is going to people. Um, yeah. And it's not like it's not like corporations aren't made of people. They just don't feel like they are necessarily. It's like a weird thing where no matter what we spend money on, it is going to people. But it is mm -hmm. good to know that like, oh, there's also like a heart and soul of this company. It wasn't that someone was sitting around one day and went like, oh, you know what a good business opportunity is, like X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I, I often think about the difference between like a restaurant that you go into um, like a small restaurant where you can tell that it's like m from somebody who like really cares about the food being good. And there's other restaurants that you go into that you're like, oh, somebody just went like, oh, this neighborhood needs a sandwich shop and like, or like a pizza spot. And like, they're not giving any love and attention to like the design or to the pizza. They just knew that people would spend money on it if they started it. And it's like those yeah. types of businesses. I'm like, ah, I don't really... I don't really want to be here. <laughs> yeah, I think joy. also, though, like, I, I do think there's a reason or there's a place for big corporations. And I've noticed myself even, like, doing more research on who's running companies. Like, who, I don't know, who is the CEO of whatever company? Like, yeah, I, it's interesting. I listened to a podcast on Bumble's co-founder or founder. Um, oh, now, yeah. I mean, I'm obviously not on Bundle for like dating, but it did make me want to get on Bumble. They have like Bumble Biz, where you right. can connect with other people just from like a networking perspective. And um, like I got on that because I listened to this woman's story. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I definitely will say like I was, I always thought that like if I ever went to a soul cycle, it would be for like a social experiment just to be like, whoa, what's this crazy cultish place people go to? Um, but then I listened to an interview with the founder 
And she was so incredible, and I loved how honest and open she was about how she and her yeah. husband, like, budgeted early on and stuff like that. That I was like, oh, here I put all this judgment on something, and it's just, like, women who, like, want to be able to work out and feel good. And I'm, why does that, and, like, what's wrong with me that that makes me grouchy? <laughs> oh, I've had that reaction. Don't worry. It's because you're not doing it, and that's what makes you, it's like a slap right. in the face kind of I did try out a place called Burn Cycle in Seattle, and, like, I really, really liked it. And, like, to the point where, like, during one of them, I think I cried. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> not even from pain, just from being, like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, very silly. Um, so one qu- kind of quick subject before we – or actually two. I would like to ask you, because you have so many roles and responsibilities – is there a specific way that you task manage? Like, do you use any apps or like time trackers or anything like that to manage your time? Um, I thought you were going to ask to manage other people's times. Uh, so or that we do both. Use, we can talk about both. We yeah. So we use Slack for internal communication um, and Asana for project management. Um, and those are, I think, really really critical to our success. Like, I don't. What I realized, what Ruben and I both realized pretty quickly on is that we could not keep everything in our head. And I've always had a really good memory and it's shot now. Like there's, it's just on overload and there's too much to remember and to keep track of. And so, yeah, having us on in Slack, just even as a record of like, I don't remember what I said yesterday. And now I can look at it and see what I said and see what I told people to do or whatever. So I think, um, those are really critical for, for our company. Um, for my own time management, um, I do everything analog, I guess would be the term. I have, I go through about six planners a year. Uh, I'm pretty intense about them, and but also get bored easily with them and want to do a new one. So I have <laughs> like my calendar planner, um, and then I also do like a notebook of a list every day. Um, And I just actually this weekend started bullet journaling. We'll see TBD on whether that's going to be a thing that I keep in my life. Um, But yeah, for my own time management, I do, I do it all on my like writing, physically writing it down. Um, But Ruben and I try to have a morning meeting every meeting or every morning um, to kind of talk about like high level priorities for the day because what we found is there's a lot of collaboration necessary between the two of us, but we also, both of us can't be on everything at all times. And so really structuring how we're each going to, what we're each going to drive at so that we can plan how we're going to help the other person too. So if it's like, you know, we need to get this email out and I'm going to need, I'm going to write it, but I'm going to need your time at around 11 to review it, to make sure we're on the same page on it, things like that, um, has been super helpful. And we're not great about it. We don't do it every day. We try to do it, but there are plenty of days where it doesn't happen. Um, So, yeah, that's that's how we do it. But I will also say that there's never a point where we are getting done everything on our list for the day. Well, no, I can't imagine. I don't even know what I would do. Like, yeah, I constantly just have an ongoing list of everything that needs to get done. And then behind that list, there's, like, a whole other list of non-urgent yeah. things. Like, I've been meaning to switch, like, roll a Roth IRA over from one bank to Acorns for, like, eight months now. 
And I yeah. sent in the paperwork once and they sent, they said that I sent the wrong thing. And I was like, well, I've been meaning to do this for a while. I guess we're just going to wait another until I'm like angry again that the U.S. bank keeps charging me $30 a year for this dumb account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think also it's, it's different for everyone, but like I try and get all of my kind of like small tasks out of the way first. Um, so that I'm not, otherwise, if I'm working on kind of a more longer term project that doesn't necessarily have a completion to it, I'll just be thinking about all the small things that I'm not get, that I didn't get done, and I won't actually be able to appropriately focus on the bigger picture. Um, so I try to get out kind of the more task oriented things before I dive into like a longer term project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But um, everyone's different. I've also heard people say that they, just start with the biggest thing and tackle that so that they get it out of the way. Well, it also depends on what like biggest means to you. Like I know for me, when there's a big project, I used to sort of like put it off and then try to do it all in one sitting. But I've realized that I really like having time to sort of like let it marinate. So I'll like start diving into it and get an mm -hmm. idea of what it is and maybe start chipping away at it. And then when I hit a wall, I'll go like, okay, now is the time that I can like, like right now it's the start of the month. So I have to do all my invoices. And that to me is like pulling teeth, like to the point where like, so my, this is how like um, any, like my cannabis consumption is, is that I will, when there's something I don't want to do that's mindless, like an invoice, what I'll do is I will take an edible and then it's like a race until it kicks in. And I have to send out <laughs> those invoices before it kicks in because then I know I won't be able to. <laughs> oh, I love it. That is that's like awesome. That's like my way of saying like, no, now you have to because who knows when you're gonna have a functioning brain again and not mess up this invoice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's that is really like, funny. I but but it's accurate. It's it's interesting though that you say that because when I am like working on a project that I'm just too deep in or whatever, or I can't, if I need to take a break, I'll often do bookkeeping as my break because yeah. it's a little bit more like mindless and I can just do it and actually like there's a spot for everything and it's very that's what gets to me sometimes is like some of the bigger strategic types of projects that we work on like they could go on forever though they don't really have a completion date or whatever and sometimes I think psychologically you need to start and finish a task in yeah. order to be or at least I do in order to stay motivated and stay productive and so I think Sometimes doing things like bookkeeping or invoicing or whatever, it's like, great, I can check that off my list now. Like, I got through 50 transactions and they're done. Like, yeah, there is a certain level of dopamine that gets released when you get to do that, where you're like, oh, good, that's out of the way. There were a few things I got to check off yesterday that I was like, oh, wow, look at that. Like, this is good. Um, so the last question I ask everybody is what is something, so as you know, this podcast is called BTS Podcast because it stands for behind the scenes and I talk to people about what they do or how something's made. What is a subject or maybe a person um, that you would want to hear a future episode about? Oh, I would love to hear more people interviewed about manufacturing. I feel like it is just not something that is talked very much about, especially contract manufacturing and private labeling, like not, not in the cannabis or CBD space, but, you know, like clothing or, um, I don't know, just products I think would be really interesting. I would love, especially startup stories of manufacturers, I think would be really interesting. Um, I'm sure did Ruben, I'm sure Ruben said something about scientists. Yeah. Um, 
which makes sense. But I, that's okay by me. Um, <laughs> you won't be offended if I do an episode with a scientist. I won't be offended by that. Um, <laughs> I think what would be interesting though too is like I really like hearing people's journeys to how they got somewhere. And I think sometimes podcasts that I listen to are very like standard of course this person like who was getting his MBA started a business kind of thing. But I like when people kind of have a more circuitous route to something and can talk about that. So maybe there's some people like that. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And um, where should people find Kanapa? Yeah, you can go to our website at getkanapa.com or um, we have an Instagram at getkanapa. Um, and you can purchase online or we're in a couple of retailers, but we really prioritize e-commerce. And Sencha is sencialabs.io. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Molly. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sinead. Thank you for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. Please feel free to share this with anyone who you know who is trying to get into cannabis. Browse Kanapa products. If you see anything that you like, please use BTS Podcast 25 to save 25% on your order. Subscribe, rate, review, become a monthly contributor at anchor.fm slash BTS podcast. And feel free to join the Facebook group. It is hashtag BTS podcast guests and listeners, or maybe it's listeners and guests. Anyways, feel free to join. You can submit questions, submit guest ideas, and uh, get a sneak peek on what's going on. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do rate and review. If you listen anywhere else, just subscribe. It'd be greatly appreciated. No one will judge you if you follow this podcast on Instagram. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it would also be appreciated because when I am talking to sponsors, that is the first thing they look at is how many followers the podcast has. And I promise you, I do my best to share useful information. I'm not just there bombarding you with nonsense. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And let me know if you try Canopus products. I'm really interested in your experience. I think you will love them.